I want to dedicate this episode to my dear old friend Tim Gallagher, who first introduced me to the films of Louis Spinwell back after we first met in 1980. Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, welcoming you to episode 131 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, in which I and my friends will be discussing Louis Spinwell's 1972 film, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. This is a program where we're going through all of the films in the Criterion collection in the chronological order of their original release. And now the format of this particular episode is a little different than usual. Uh, most of the time I will get my guests together into one panel discussion, whether it's just me and one other person or me and several others. It's just one conversation that we record in real time. I do a little bit of editing, a little bit of mixing, and voila, there's the episode. Uh, I had a lot of people who had expressed an interest in this film, and not surprising at all, this is a true classic of art house cinema, surrealist cinema, just offbeat, unusual, unique films of the 1970s. And of course, there's a lot of people who've appreciated this film from multiple angles over the years. Uh, but just to make things a little bit more manageable on the scheduling and even on the editing front, I uh, decided to do this as a series of one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, various guests. Uh, there were others who had expressed some interest as well, but these are the four that we were able to work it out so that we could get a recording in. So they were all recorded within a, several days, I think about a week or so, maybe a week and a half it took me to get this all together. Uh, the guests are Derek Power, Travis Trudell, Brad McDermott, and Dave Eaves. So you may choose to listen to this all in one big go, uh, or you might want to just break it up into segments and think of it as four episodes all about the same film. I'll leave it up to you. It is a virtual, sumptuous feast if you want to take it all in at once, or if you're interrupted somewhere along the way, you can uh, hit the pause button and come back and finish up some other time. Uh, it's really up to you. But uh, I enjoyed the conversations. Sometimes we will make similar observations from one segment to the next. Uh, I even repeat myself a little bit here and there, but it's all in good fun, and uh, hopefully we'll give you a little bit of... Uh, insight as to what we loved about this movie if you perhaps love it yourself or maybe you're looking to be convinced i'm not sure but uh, in any case here is our conversation about louise benwell's the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie All right, Derek. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight as I get this uh, little experiment going here. This is Derek Power. Derek, how's it going for you today? Uh, it's going fine. Thankfully, I was able to reschedule my dinner with the Colombian ambassador to join ah, you this evening. Yes. Well, you know, I just finished a very delicious home-cooked meal myself, and there were no disruptions whatsoever. <laughs> Had nice no, no maneuvers and no, no robbers. Nope, no muffled sobs from the other room with uh, corpses <laughs> laying on the table. <laughs> it was pretty much a, a very pleasant evening at home with my wife. Um, so, you know, I'm already, I feel like I'm two steps ahead of the uh, of the poor souls that we see uh, meandering their way through uh, 
this uh, late career masterpiece by Louis Spinwell, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. So, yeah, yeah as I, I, I haven't yet recorded it, but I, I will put a little introduction on this episode, basically saying I'm going to be getting the reactions of a few of my friends who I've podcasted with in the past uh, to kind of tell me a little bit about their relationship with this movie if you want to get into Benwell uh at large that's perfectly fine but uh yeah let's let's focus on the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie 1972 Louis Benwell uh, it was his Oscar winner and there's a whole host of accolades that uh, this movie earned and maybe we'll mention those along the way but why don't you just kind of get us started with telling us about your connection with this film and why you wanted to join me on the podcast so this this film was actually one of my early Criterion purchases, which was also in line with my earliest explorations into cinema writ large. And uh, what an introduction uh, to mm-hmm. cinema at large and, and also with Bunuel in particular. So since then, my experience with Bunuel has been kind of scattershot, but mostly focusing on the later period. So I'm very familiar with uh, the Milky Way and the Phantom of Liberty and uh, that obscure object of desire. And just, I have kind of a passing familiarity of, of his other films, you know, especially um, Anshun Ande- uh, Andaluzo and mm-hmm. uh, La Age d'Or and um, Verindia and Los Olvidados and uh, Simon of the Desert and the Exterminating Angel and, and so forth. Uh, Belle du Jour, Diary of a Chambermaid. But yeah, just more of like a passing familiarity as opposed to like an in-depth, repeated viewing. So, Do you remember how you first heard about The Discreet Charm? Like what was it that drew you in to say this is one of my first Criterion purchases or something I just want to get into? Well, it was, it was, it was early on and... Uh, can you tell me, like, what age were you, like, or where were you at? Oh, I was, I was in college, so I was in okay. my twenties, and mm-hmm. uh, and this was still like when I was when I was getting to Criterion. I think the spine number count was about they're in the the one seventies or one seventy five or so. So it was kind of so. Uh, so I was just kind of looking through the titles, and I just and I noticed the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, and I forget exactly what drew me into it, but I think it was just a combination of. Well, I think the cover is probably probably the first eye-catching thing of it. And then I think this was a title that I heard about just kind of in the periphery and so forth, and also with Boone Wells. So I figured, okay, this looks interesting. So I, I gave it a view, and I liked it, and, and, uh, just, and I figured I'd add it to the library because the supplements on there also gave me a good crash course into the life of Boone Wells. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've kind of think of this as sort of a gateway, not into just Luis Bunuel and, and surrealism, but you're, as you already said, kind of foreign cinema, or at least for, for English-speaking viewers, kind of art house cinema. Yep. You know, it's, it, it's, it's got a lot of accessibility to it. You know, it's in color. Uh, yep. It's got characters that even if you can't relate to their, if you can't relate to their lifestyle, uh, you know, this upper middle class, the bourgeoisie of the title, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, these characters, these are people of, of class and sophistication and the movie kind of makes mocking fun of them and, and sometimes gentle ways, sometimes pretty, pretty ripping, you know, and as you said, you know, Boonwell's career really had quite a bit of this in it. In fact, his earlier films, some of the titles that you kind of rattled off there uh, a couple minutes ago, 
you kind of show him in a much kind of more confrontational, even angry or provocative mood. At this point here, even though they are still the object of his uh, mockery, if you will, um, mm-hmm. there seems to be a little bit more of a settledness to it. And I think because it doesn't have that same kind of angry, you know, overtly hostile tone, it, it is kind of a, a, a more of a good natured comedy. Uh, as well as then the the mind tricks and all the all the you know the the subtleties of the unexpected surprises, especially on the first <laughs> watch, and even the second and third, you know, it's it's not yeah. a movie that you, you remember it. You remember the impressions, but you don't always remember every little move that he makes. And so there's a lot of rediscovery as it, as it as right goes through multiple viewings. Right. It definitely took me a couple of viewings, certainly to get a used to the map of it and, and mm-hmm. the, the inherent logic of it, because it is more or less a, not just a series of dreams, but it's also a series of nested dreams because you have dreams within dreams. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's helpful to, once you kind of know where all those turns occur, then, then you, you, you can internalize it and, make sense of it as much as one can make sense of these things so <laughs> yeah and also just the admiration for the the you know the, the bravado of, of pulling this off of, of actually making a movie that has uh, as much of the sort of the sophistication uh the, the you know the skill of a, of a guy who's been making films at this point for like what five decades or something like that. That's actually um, something that I've, I've noticed in, in recently reviewing it was just like, this is definitely um, a, a film coming from an older filmmaker who is, who certainly has had a lot of experience and has had a lot going on with him. And so there isn't that. So there's a, a kind of tasteful restraint that comes mm-hmm. into play where, and where he doesn't have to, prove himself necessarily uh i would i would say like in filmmakers when they're younger they're more audacious and more driven and but as they mature in their career and as they get older they get a little more mellower so that's kind of what i that's kind of what i pick up is is that this this is sort of a mellower boonwell probably compared to maybe his earlier films again i don't have as much familiarity of his mm-hmm. earlier filmography but i i, I wouldn't be surprised if earlier films are more stronger in presentation or more audacious than in this one. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then also, also something else I came, that came to mind is there's also restraint compared to his contemporaries. You know, I, I think, again, I think a younger filmmaker around this time would be, would also be more audacious and more daring and more confrontational. But here uh, it's it's still confrontational, but done I think in a more again restrained and I, I just keep coming back to that word restraint. Like there's like there there's there's a certain control and you're not always swinging for the fences all the time. Uh, yeah, he's he's modulated the, the sharpness of his humor there. But take me back to that that early viewing, if you can, Derek. That that collegiate, you know, young <laughs> young man who's just kind of expanding his horizons. I don't. I, I, we've had conversations before. I don't know exactly what your youthful viewing habits were, but probably like a lot of Americans, you you grow up on kind of whatever Hollywood's pushing at you, and and, and uh, you know different different genres. I don't know if you were like into science fiction, fantasy, drama, adventure. Uh, but how did this film fit? in with your cinema diet of the time and, and how did it kind of influence you to continue exploration and, 
and uh, you know maybe trying new things or getting off the uh, more familiar or conventional path. What I would say a precedent uh, before seeing the discrete charm would a- that would come close to something like this would actually be Monty Python. Sure. Uh, so I so I was very familiar with so I gravitated right away to that absurdist and even anarchic humor, and so th- that's what I picked up on right away and. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the one that probably was the the strongest, uh, like the strongest precedent, you know, before before seeing this. And uh, in general, before and since, I try to keep uh, an open mind to things that are out there. I mean, there's things that I like more than others. I mean, the genres you mentioned, uh, I I have a penchant for science fiction and for fantasy, mm-hmm. not so much action, uh, definitely drama, um, and. Uh, through my mother, I, uh, I noted, uh, American independent film and, uh, my, and through my father, I had, you know, sort of classic Hollywood, certainly like classic Hollywood from the seventies. Okay. So that was kind of, that was kind of my experience kind of going into college. And then, and then during college, I just tried to get caught up as far as the uh, history of cinema at large, you know, so everything like before, the 1940s, for instance, in in America, and then of course through Europe and Asia and everywhere else, the, there was an opportunity to to see something. So. so, so are there any particular bits or vignettes that stand out to you? Kind of what what grabbed you about this film to say, oh, this this is cool. I like it. I want to I want to see more from this guy. Um, I think so. For the film itself, I, I think what's interesting is that the the whole drama if you will are the are these six or so individuals trying to have a dinner together and it's always thwarted by something whether mm-hmm. whether it be you know a, a miscommunication in scheduling or some misunderstanding of action and or somebody coming in and interrupting action and so forth and so um i kind of think of it as like the unfulfillment of a of a deep desire that these characters have, which um, if you take it from like, uh, but if you're if you're taking from the standpoint of mocking these individuals, it's like, oh well, this is like if this is like the worst thing that that happens to you, then geez, you know, cry me a river, <laughs> almost. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. These people live obviously uh, lives of great privilege. I mean the the surroundings, the environments that they kind of flow through. I mean, that's one of the things that I sort of sit back and watch now, now that I've watched this probably movie, I don't know, seven or eight times over the course of the years. I just marvel at like the sets, the decor, the furnishings, their wardrobes. It's like all of this, you know, the finer things in life, even the way they go over a menu and kind of dissect what's being offered and what wine pairs with this dish. I mean, some of it's, you know, kind of, kind of almost like cliches, but it's uh, very impressive. I mean, and and to be able to to pull off, you know, staging all of these different scenes in these rather opulent kind of uh, you know environments. These 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 sets. Uh, these are probably actual houses. They, he probably used some of his connections to get into some very well appointed residencies. Um, uh, but it, you know, it, there's a, there's a, that, that opulent richness, I think is one of the things that sort of has stood out to me in my more recent, uh, encounters of just how these people live and, and yet they are, 
kind of shallow, vacant people who've just sort of stumbled into this life of luxury and uh, don't really know what else to do with themselves other than, you know, again, show off their manners, their their knowledge of, of fine dining and all the other customs of, of, uh, of a privileged way of life. Mm-hmm. And actually something that, that I recall in, in like previous viewings is noting that this is looking at European bourgeois where, where compared to in America, there's, there's more social mobility in America, mm-hmm. but not so much in, in Europe. So yeah, this is old money here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very old money. I mean, even, even a lot of the professions, I mean, the, the most obvious one being, um, the ambassador, uh, Don Raphael, you know, is, is, mm-hmm. in a, is in a privileged position, but we can presume that the other ones have, were kind of born into money and not necessarily, uh, shall we say nouveau riche, uh, Right. In fact, Don Rafael, he is kind of the outsider here. He's the one who's from Latin America. He, so he's really, he is, you know, he is privileged, but he's he's coming in from the outside. Uh, he's a distinguished guest. And so because of that status that he brings with him, uh, he's draw, He's taken into this circle. I, I thought another scene that kind of jumped out at me was the introduction of the bishop character, another one who's not really part of this social set on his own, but because of the status that he brings with him, he's mm-hmm. accepted. Of course, when the first time you see him, he's in overalls and he's introducing himself as a guy who wants to do gardening. But he says, well, I'm a, I'm a bishop. And he's like, you imposter, you fraud, get out of here. And they kind of indignantly yeah. throw him out until he shows up with all of his robes and all of his finery. And it's like, oh, well, senor, you know, come in, you know, and he's he's shown all of all of the, the grace and, and accommodation that uh, his office brings with him. So there is yeah. that, just that absurdity. Uh, Whether you want to call it hypocrisy or not, it's just it's a, you know, you 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 have a merit because of your station in life. Yeah, uh, but underneath all of the finery, you're just a regular old human being with all of your lusts and desires and appetites. Yeah, and and weaknesses. Actually, a quick thing about the bishop. I've I found, as far as characters are concerned, I found the bishop to be the more, the slightly more sincere and more human of mm-hmm. the, of the characters. I mean, every everyone else has a certain, uh, a certain arrogance and smugness to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but he he comes off as as more genuine and sincere about what he's doing and what he believes and has a more of a moral center. I know there's a certain portion where that kind of mm-hmm. calls into question, but but for the most part, he seems to be more again kind of more human and and less of a caricature than maybe some of the other characters. Which is kind of remarkable, given Bunuel's um, depiction of religion, and especially of the uh, of the clergy, of the ecclesiastical yeah. authorities. They have never been in his, uh, you know, uh, list of friends uh, or <laughs> or people that he admires. In fact, just the opposite of that. So you're right. I think the bishop does get a fairly sympathetic portrayal here, and of course, well, I, know, I found I found that Bunuel has actually has a very complicated had a very complicated relationship with religion i mean he was yeah. one of his famous quibs was thank god i'm not i'm an atheist mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. uh but at the same time i think he had a sincere respect for what religion can provide i think he was uh and understandably so i think he was just questioning the like those that abuse it and uh abuse its its power over people i think um, yeah well, and and how spirituality had become sort of 
wedded to earthly authority uh, with all the yes. pomp and the wealth and the, in many cases, turning a blind eye to the suffering of humanity or complicity with some of the, you know, gross injustices. But but right. he always had this kind of witty, um, you know, interplay. He wasn't just a denouncer. He wasn't just yes. a, a pedant who's out there, you know, decrying the the corruption and the hypocrisy. He always had this kind of very interesting winking turn. I mean, he could get into theological debates. I think the Milky Way is a pretty great yep. example of that. He can get into the finer points of doctrine and all of the, you know, the all all of the uh, intricacies of of uh, of a high theology. He knew his stuff, but mm-hmm. also kind of reminded us of how much of this, you know, despite all of the. You know, the, the strife and conflict and, and even brutality that grows out of some of these theological schisms. It really is a lot of just word games that people are playing with each other and ultimately mm-hmm. with God, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, give me, give me some other kind of takeaways. What are, what are other aspects of the film that kind of, you know, resonated with you that you want to kind of, you know, draw our attention to in our conversation? Here tonight? Well, actually uh, another thing I recall is uh, hearing another commentary made about the film found in another film. And this is in Whit Stillman's Metropolitan, mm. where in one of the scenes, um, uh, the film was brought up because, because the, the guy talking thought that when he first heard the title, he thought, finally, somebody's going to tell the truth about the bourgeoisie because, you know, this, so the film, just a quick recap, it, this is a look at uh, winter break amongst uh, debutantes and upper socialite, young socialites in, um, in New York. Um, but at any rate, so, so the guy's thinking that the film was going to be a celebration of the bourgeoisie, but then he was disappointed <laughs> because yeah. no, it was, just, it was just mocking it. But he says at the end that there is that the bourgeoisie does have a certain charm. And in a way, that's kind of how I take the film is that you can you can mock them. You can kind of make fun of and ridicule their hypocrisy and shallowness. And like, for instance, you know, one of the characters absolutely detests the cello, which apparently (laughs) Bunuel detests the cello, which also means that Bunuel would not get along with me but I don't care. (laughs) Uh, Also, the way that cello is played, there's this kind of fingering motion that has this vaguely obscene quality to it. Yes, the vibrato, yes, his vibrato is very exaggerated and probably done for comic effect. But at any rate, so, um, but, but yeah, so, so in spite of all the, the mockery and the ridicule you have with bourgeoisie, there is, a admittedly a very appealing charm to it. And I think, I think maybe one of the things you can get from it is how, in spite of how loathsome they can be or how repugnant their actions can be, they're still somehow in charge or they still have this, this alluring air to them that people aspire to be, you know, and mm-hmm. in spite of their, again, their hypocrisy and shallowness and so forth. So. Well, yeah, I mean, it is it is one of those kind of facts of life, isn't it? I mean, the wealthy are are there; they are entrenched. They they yep. dug in, you know. And obviously, there are there are differences of character and motive and uh, effect that you know the the wealthy and privileged have. Some can be ruthless exploiters; uh, others can be very benevolent, even you know philanthropic in a sincere and 
life-affirming way. I mean, I know sometimes philanthropy is used as kind of a, a cover-up for a lot of egregious, you know, crimes right. even. <laughs> but But there are people who recognize, you know, I've got this wealth, I've got this ability, uh, I didn't necessarily earn it, I inherited it, uh, I want to use this power, this this uh, um, affluence uh, to do good, to, to, you know, improve the lives. I mean, they can't save everybody, they can't, you know, uh, eliminate world poverty, but, you know, that's this is what drives a lot of the uh, foundations and other social institutions of our world, and they do have a tangible, positive effect. I, this mm-hmm. does feel to me like Bunuel at the age of, I think, what, 72, when yeah. he made this film, has kind of come to a place of, of uh, not resignation, because he's he's far from being passive about this, but he's, he's just not going to, you know, settle with outright condemnation or this kind of bitter, furious resentment that, uh, you know, there is inequity, there is injustice in this world, there is an unequal distribution of wealth. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of, in some ways, poking gentle fun that uh, the rest of us common folk can kind of join in on. <laughs> and, exactly. And have a good time with, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, can, we can all be in on the joke, as, as yeah. it were. Yeah. All right. Um, any other takeaways? Give me kind of your your kind of summary thoughts, if you will, or are there other points that you want to kind of dig into? Um, I think you know. Again, I, I think just like my experience, I think this this is a good introduction to Boonwell, and uh, and certainly if anyone has a penchant for absurdist and anarchic and irreverent humor, I mean this definitely has it in spades so Mm -hmm. yeah and i think also it has that effect of kind of especially for for young viewers um kind of kind of creating some new neural pathways of what a movie can do you know if you're if you're used to a more linear style of cinema where one thing leads to another the whole cause and effect the the unfolding of a narrative uh, this shows you that you can use all of those conventions of how stories are told and how characters interact with each other and then just throw these radical, you know, left turns um, using the same tools of cinematic grammar, but but taking you into places that are completely unexpected. And it's it does it has this kind of startling effect of, of kind of like, whoa, I didn't know you could do that in movies. You know, if you're just used to watching conventional TV, I think, you know, your, your analogy to Monty Python, that was actually a point that Trevor and I, you know, developed a little bit in our earlier conversation as well. In fact, Monty Python, this was like right in the prime years of Monty Python. Yep. In fact, that this kind of pre Monty Python predated this film. And we kind of made the observation that this is Bunuel perhaps, you know, playing in that same terrain, but but doing it from a little bit more of a mature perspective. And and as I said at the time, you know, Bunuel's not just making a comedy for the sake of, you know, generating laughs, which I think Monty Python, you could say that was definitely you know, I mean, they weren't simply trying to get chuckles, but they were, you know, you know, it was a it was a comedy entertainment skit show. This this kind of goes in some different directions and certainly touches on some darker themes. And Monty Python certainly had their share of going into that some of those taboo territories as well. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I, I want to ask you one last thing. Uh, you know, this is the film that has Delphine Seyrig in it. Uh, of course, she is now the known as the focal point of the greatest film of all time, right? Right. <laughs> Jean yes. Uh, I mean, this is this is several years before Jean Dielman, but uh, she is uh, has a pretty notable presence in here. Just want to get your thoughts on on the sight and sound list and any of the things related to that. Um, I, I was I was actually thinking of this too. That both it's interesting that both Delphine Seyrig and Steph, uh, Stephanie um, Audren mm-hmm. are both in it, and they would both later play title characters who also have a penchant for cooking. Audren mm-hmm. would would of course play um, Babette and Babette's Feast. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, let's see. I think I want to say Discreet Charm does ha- has shown up on like the larger list, like when they when they get to like the the hundred like the expanded to the hundreds or when they show individual lists that were submitted to sight and sound i think discrete charm pops up yeah i think uh, you know, I think you know it, it, it is something maybe i'll have to research for the next one do you know where if Boonwell made the top hundred anywhere uh i don't know it's it's been it's been a while since i've i've yeah. looked and, I, and there's and a lot has been said about you know certainly this year's list and everybody every of course everybody has an opinion on yeah. it so but uh yeah, I would not be surprised if Boonwell shows up. <laughs> I, I'm sure he, he should. Well, I, I will figure that out by the next uh, segment that I'm going to record in a couple of days. So, well, Derek, okay. it's been great. Thank, uh, uh, thank you for the conversation. And uh, yeah, any any final words? Any anything you want to just kind of share with us as far as personal updates? I know you do music and stuff like that. And anything you want to just kind of fill listeners in on as we, it's been a while since we've had a chance to connect here on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so my site, djproject.cc has everything that is, is going on. Just, uh, just check out the links there and just see what I can offer there. And yeah, just uh, keep on keeping on. <laughs> All right, Derek. Well, thanks for your time tonight. And, uh, yeah, we'll be talking to you real soin Okay. Thank you. Mon plaisir. All right. All right, I am here with Travis Trudell. Uh, Travis, it's been a while since we've talked, but it's a very great uh, privilege and pleasure for me to introduce you to our listeners and to welcome you to Criterion Reflections. So, how's it going tonight? It's going good. I'm I'm completely unprepared. I thought we were going to be recording <laughs> tomorrow. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I guess we could go hang out at a funeral or something, but you know, I think we could. We can figure some stuff out. <laughs> well, let, let's salvage this. I've got a little powder that I bought in my satchel bag there, and we'll break out the good stuff there. <laughs> All right. Well, Travis, since this is your first appearance on Criterion Reflections, um, I'm going to go ahead and give you a minute just to sort of introduce yourself to listeners. I know you and I have talked on your podcast that you do, The Complete, uh, where you kind of break down the entire filmographies of selected directors and i'm pretty excited to hear that you're going to be getting a new uh, season of that started so why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll go from there all right yeah i'm uh, so like i said travis i uh, i'm out in the new england i'm in massachusetts area that's uh, i grew up in maine and uh i uh you know i kind of bounced around for quite a while before settling in on figuring out that uh, i really enjoy uh, working in film, talking about film, all all things film related. So I kind of followed my passions, went to film school, and uh, now work in the film industry here in the Boston area. Um, I uh, 
became kind of uh, I became friends with you and a bunch of other uh, like-minded folks over on Facebook and all the different uh, Criterion groups. Criterion linked us all together, and mm-hmm. uh, I started a group there called the Criterion. Uh, I mispronounced this on purpose, so everyone, you know, don't at me. Uh, the Criterion Gyre. Um, it's actually <laughs> gyre is how it's spelled, but uh, that was part of the fun of that group was uh, you know, saying stupid things and uh, making up making up words and uh, talking about movies and enjoying ourselves and and uh, yeah and then through that I met uh, Matt Gasteyer and he invited me to uh, co-host the uh, complete with him and we've been going through uh, different films. Uh, we started with uh, Stanley Kubrick. We went on to Elaine May. Then we did uh, Shushtov Kishlovsky, which is uh, which was really heavy and awesome to go through every single one of his films, including all of his early documentaries. Mm. And then uh, we did a uh, Satoshi Khan, uh, did a little anime, and now we're uh, we took a, a, a nice long hiatus so we can prepare ourselves for the uh, massive film uh, film career of uh, Agnes Varda. So uh, we're starting that on pretty soon and uh we're excited to uh have you on as, again as well i think one of my favorite conversations i've had was uh, about 2001 with you and oh, we yes, just like yes. we i think our i think uh one of the comments on on the post was uh our talk about that movie was longer than the movie itself which is pretty impressive and it, and it was it was time well spent, Travis. I absolutely have fond recollections of that. So that was my guest appearance on the Kubrick season, and then we talked about a, a short film about was it love. killing? I, yeah, or was yeah, it love? That's love, right. We did the uh, love one. That's right. Yeah. So had a couple chances to interact with you directly on that, and I do still appreciate the Geyer on Facebook, um, which has not it's no longer the Criterion Geyer. It's just the Geyer, and that is. Yeah kind of like my comfort zone. You know, I'm a member of several different Facebook groups, but that's kind of where I just kind of go to hang out with the guys. And, and there's a few gals in there as well. So that was, that was the point of the group place to chill <laughs> and not have to worry about pretension and all the other weird right, stuff. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. The competitive element is basically set to the side. We're not trying to impress or blow each other away, but to just a, a cool place to hang out. And I know it's kind of a select group there. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're on the inside track listeners, uh, Find us and maybe we'll let you in the club. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and pick up our conversation about Louis Bunuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Now, Travis, you said you work in the film industry, and I'd like to hear maybe a little bit of your thoughts on Bunuel's artistic craft. Uh, this is, of course, a pretty mature work for him. But let's start and go back a little bit further, more maybe foundational. Same question I led with Derek. Uh, what's your relationship with this discrete charm and maybe your kind of overall take on Bunuel and what he's meant to you as a, as a filmmaker? The first time I kind of ran into Bunuel was uh, in film school, um, as most you know most people do, because usually uh, you you think you know about movies until you go to film school and they mm-hmm. start showing you stuff you've never even heard of. And uh, this was one of the rare films that my uh, film history teacher showed us the entirety of it in class. So we watched it in uh, like a sitting and a half, and. Uh, it was, the discreet charm in particular. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The discreet yeah. charm. Yes, we watched it in, a, in two sittings, I believe, and it was uh, it really opened up a lot of doors into my brain about kind of mm. what the what film can accomplish and what it can achieve and the different ways to do it. Uh, gone were traditional narrative structures. Um, you know, there was there was always short films and experimental things, but this was 
something that you it's light and breezy and you can easily follow along but it's also uh deeply embedded in the surrealist movement but also it's a slapstick comedy that mm-hmm. is also a comedy of errors it's it's a it's almost like Bunuel was just kind of putting as much stuff as he felt like putting in that movie because he really truly thought this was going to be his last film mm-hmm. uh he was like ah oh, this is it i'm 73 i'm i'm done and he went on to make what three more movies after this i, I think there were two more basically two? there was a third that he had sort of in mind but he was pretty much just out of gas after that obscure object of desire but yeah, yeah and this is one of three films that uh, my friend trevor and i talked about in inside the box uh kind of this late career kind of revival because yeah I, as i mentioned in the previous segment uh, tristana was supposed to be his kind of crowning achievement uh a film set in Spain in the city of Toledo and and uh, would have been a very fitting note to go out on. But you're right, back in those days, especially directors of 70 plus years old just really were not expected to do all the heavy lifting that it takes to direct a full-scale feature production. And this really is a very remarkable work. You know, again, as I said, it rewards multiple rewatches with all of the, you know, the, the sets, the designs, the attention to detail, um, yeah, that first impression, that's obviously it sounds like it made a pretty positive impression on you that first watch there, but, uh, how many times have you come back to revisit this one? I think, uh, for this, for this podcast, our meeting, I watched it two more times. I think it's mm-hmm. a total of like seven times I've seen this yeah. film yeah. and it's, yeah. it's great because it's, it's one of those films that even though I know what it's about every time I watch it, I kind of forget what's, what was, what it was about. It almost has that dream quality where Mm -hmm. you wake up and it vivid, you vividly remember what just happened. And then throughout the course of the day, even the next couple of hours, it slowly kind of disappears in your, in your memory. And -hmm. this has the same, like as many times as we visit dreams in the movie itself, it has the same kind of quality. And that, I think that that kind of assured quality of filmmaking can only come from someone who's 73 years old. A lot of a lot of our filmmakers, as they aged out of the process, they fought hard to kind of keep their edge and keep their look. And then they kind of or just completely dissipated and just like ended up turning out schlock towards the end of their careers. Mm -hmm. And Bunuel, because of his chameleon nature because of this constant changing you know he started he started in he started in france and he did the uh, he was in the surrealist movement you know his first film right out of the gate with salvador dali made a huge impression and it's almost kind of like where do you go from there and he just kind of went wherever he felt like and then as political things kept moving him around you know moving to move you know, had to leave spain franco spain was just took completely you know devastating to him uh came to hollywood to make a movie um because everyone loved his uh uh or and stuff like that they wanted to kind of pick his brain and get him over there kind of like they did with a lot of the other uh, european expats at the time mm-hmm. and uh he made nothing while he was there <laughs> <laughs> he, he was he was miserable. He didn't like it. He didn't like the Hollywood system, and uh, he ended up settling in Mexico and started really uh, working on his craft, uh, moving a bit away from the surrealism, but keeping the surrealist elements uh, in place in certain aspects and really kind of uh, digging. And I think I want to say off the top of my head, I might be wrong. He made something like twenty films in Mexico. 
something it, around there. Yeah, that seems like a pretty reasonable. I mean, there's a lot of titles, and a lot of them are exceedingly difficult to find. I was like, oh, yeah. thinking of the concept of the complete. He he'd oh, be a yeah. fun one to cover, but there are going to be some real uh, you know yeah. deep cuts that you're going to have a hard time tracking. It, down. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard, and it makes it it, it makes me sad because you know that there is you know just now they're really starting to dig into uh mexican film archives and really mm-hmm. kind of bringing out stuff but you know they're starting with all their all their uh all their locals first and then they'll probably work their way around someone eventually is going to find all of his stuff and just do a nice transfer of it and bring it back out again but um yeah so let's yeah talking about bunuel and the way that he goes about making films uh i think one of the things that really stands out the most in this movie is the fact that all his uh all his piss and vinegar is gone he's an old man he doesn't have that (laughs) Mm -hmm. he doesn't have that angry youth that angry uh kind of like he's not you know really just completely skewering the uh upper class he's he's gently doing it it's almost like at this point he's so old he knows you know what there's nothing i can say or do to make them change the way they are so we're just going to lightly poke fun of them so they can laugh along with it as well because it's pretty ridiculous kind of like the the things that are important to them in this film, the things that mean something to them and just the fact that all of their pretenses have to be with uh, held up so they can't uh, act on their baser instincts of sex and food except for one occasion which it ruins the food for everyone else <laughs> well well and the, you know they do find little ways to exercise those uh base appetites you know there's the scene of the seneschals when they're supposed to be greedy oh, yeah. guests but they gotta have their little quickie in the upstairs bedroom <laughs> but then the guests arrive and they really can't make all that noise so they literally climb out the window down the wall <laughs> and into the garden and it's just such a frenetic uh hairy little scene there and and played with 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 great dexterity by the two actors who you know especially stefan odran she uh she gives some interviews and some of the supplements. She seemed to really have a lot of fun with that scene, even though she says herself she's actually rather shy and and it you know sort of took a certain summoning up of courage, but also Bunuel's assurance that this was going to be handled tastefully, uh, discreetly, as so to say, you know, and and uh, that's a really fantastic scene. And just before we got on tonight, I was watching just have it on my monitor there, the the little rendezvous between. Uh, the Delphine Seyrig character yes. and the ambassador and just how deftly they play that off. I mean, they're just about to get into it. And then all of a sudden the husband shows up and she just announces herself after she's kind of put herself back together and just glides right through. Doesn't miss a beat. Oh, I was just here to invite him to the luncheon myself, my dear, you know, <laughs> just, but, but, but just so impeccably played off. And, and yet it's, you know, as, as absurd as it is, it's also believable, you know, that oh, this is how these folks, folks behave and, and conduct themselves yeah exactly it's a it, it, that kind of assuredness of character only comes from a people who uh who partake in these dalliances constantly and it's, yeah i mean honestly uh it was the second viewing it took me till that scene on my first viewing back for this podcast to realize that uh she wasn't married to the ambassador no, like, no. I thought they right. were coupled that way. I thought it was the ambassador <laughs> yeah. and her, the young girl and the uh and the and the French gentleman, and that was that. And yeah. then, you know, it was that dalliance. I was like, oh, wait a second. 
they're not married at all because no. they because they're so familiar with each other they're so mm-hmm. casual with each other that you would you almost think that that's that's kind of like the way the way it goes and so it's uh it's fun <laughs> yeah. and I, you know and i love all the speaking of how like confident in their richness they are uh, all the little small petty jabs that they make at each other and at other things like just little like uh, walking in oh the fire's not even started, but she's saying yeah. it with a smile and grace, but you know, she's mm-hmm. horribly offended that the fire's not ready. The table's not set or, uh, the gentleman, uh, when they're sitting at the, uh, the, the first place they go out to eat at and he's sitting there going, just picking through the menu and talking about everything on the menu. He could probably do better. Yeah. And yeah. You're just uh, like, I'd get the caviar, but mine, <laughs> mine is so much better. This yeah. is obviously inferior. This right? is obviously inferior. This whole place, look, it's probably cheap. And they, they have like 30 fish dishes, but nothing is good enough for them. It's a, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. And that, and that comes from a lot of the writing. And he had a really good partnership with the, uh, with the writer of this film, uh, the two of them, Jean-Claude uh, Carrière. Yeah. They went on to make the next two movies he made together and they were all well-regarded and well-known. And it's, it's, uh, it's that confidence. It's that's, that's part of that, uh, director's journey where you get to a point in your career where you start to either you relinquish the reins cause you know, it's the relationship you build that help tell your story better and better. And he mm-hmm. said many a times, he goes, I don't make movies for people. I make movies for my friends and mm-hmm. if, if it makes them laugh and they have a good time, then that's, that's all it was. That's all the point. All the point of this is, and you miss that in modern movies. Now it's all about box office and about what you make back and about uh, the award season and everything like that. And there is, there seems to be a lack of like people making small fun films for themselves or the whole seventies has so many of these small fun films, like the whole decade you're covering right now in your show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's filled with these small experimental films, personal films, uh, little side projects, things that people just want to get up off the ground. And that, there's a magical that whole era is super magical in mm. terms of of making these types of films and seeing someone like Bunuel come in and and be able to still like tell a little fun story that really it's it's a trifling story there's really nothing super heavy <laughs> there's no didactic right. there's nothing didactic in this film there's nothing telling you what you need to think or what you need to feel it's just a series of some some non sequiturs, some completely just random dream logic, uh, you know, and it uh it works well in telling that story that way because it can have fun and it doesn't have to be serious. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but all the craft that goes into the building of the sets, the camera work, the direction, the acting, all of that is at the top of its game. So it allows for that freedom to have fun. Well, yeah, and and just that fun, I think, is one of the things I want to sort of pick up on from what you were saying there. You get the sense that this crew, this whole production, was just having the time of their life. You know, the actors—I mean, they're they're not necessarily always breaking character, but when it's appropriate for them to smile, to laugh, to relax, to just sort of bask in the moment, you you see that coming through, and you you feel like the person who's portraying that role is is really just enjoying themselves and the uh and the privilege that it is to participate in making a film with a a director of bunuel's not just his reputation it's just not because he's the famous great louis bunuel 
but because he is really is a pretty wonderful human being uh, who's been through a lot. I mean, you know, you can say he's, you know, he, he, he was resilient and he responded well, but you have to figure he went through some pretty rough times as a filmmaker. He, this was no cakewalk for him. I mean, you know, a starving artist, political persecution, repression, censorship, dislocation, you know, perhaps even threats of violence or, you know, other types of uh, serious hardship, not, not just joking around here. And yet he somehow found a way to survive all that and continue practicing his craft uh, at a stage of life where he felt maybe those opportunities were behind him and to come out uh, with such assurance and to, to, you know, to just create this, this film about people who you're right. Uh, there, there's heavy themes. There's, there's serious, uh, you know, comments about religion and politics, but the deftness and the lightness of touch with which he approaches that material uh, is kind of, um, it's it's whimsical in a way that you know most any viewers you know of, of a certain sophistication at least should be able to relate to and appreciate and, and be in on the joke uh, but there's so much depth and texture here that you know you can watch it over and over again and like I say continue to discover new little details and and um, you know aspects that kind of slid past you because there was so much to take in in the first couple go rounds there. So let me ask, now you work in the film business. What is your specific kind of role or what kind of uh, aspects do you, do you focus on in your, in your movie making? I do, uh, I do lighting, David. I, uh, okay. that's a, I went to school for uh, writing. I went to school for film writing and uh, the program I was in got uh, shut down because I was the only person in that program. <laughs> and so they said, okay. you, you can move to the directing track or the cinematography track. And uh, yeah. I asked how, well, how many people are in the directing track? And he said like 40. And I go, how many in the cinematography? He goes, three. I go, I'll go cinematography. There's Just opportunities keep... there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it was great because, you know, yeah. I got to, I got to, you know, I got to film like uh, you know, six, seven projects for my, my final thesis while all the directors got to direct one. So yeah. it was good. It was nice. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I do lighting for film and television. And so I have a lot of fun doing that. And it's fun being a part of the process. And yeah. like you said, like you can tell when a, you can tell when the, everyone on set was having a fun time. Cause it's mm-hmm. just having, having that, that kind of light attitude on set where it's about just, you know, I'm sure they didn't do long days. I'm sure they filmed the scene and moved on. And you kind of feel Bunuel's making his martinis off to oh, the side exactly. there, and, and uh, we'll we'll get a couple scenes in here, and let's just yeah. kind of kick back for the evening. <laughs> exactly, and, and you yeah. know, and he was he was super into mixology. He loved oh, yeah. making drinks. It was one oh, yeah. of his favorite, one of his passions that he says he held throughout all the years. He had those giant bible of mixed drinks that he had accrued over every journey he went sure. on. so well he was um, a bit of a bourgeoisie himself oh, completely and that's either. why that's why he yeah. has the perfect understanding on how to kind of poke fun at them you know mm-hmm. i'm sure half of these conversations are conversations he's overheard or been privy to as well yeah um, just slightly adapted and, and oh yeah the, place the, there. the yeah. light the light hypocrisies of some of their actions talking about how uh how they can't stand drug abusers while they're uh, peddling, while they're uh, putting together the money for the drugs they just sold, teasing, teasing the, uh, teasing That's the right. driver, teasing the driver for not being able to drink a martini properly, you know, just it's 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 all you know while they're while they're making their drinks, just all these like small little 
hypocrisies and their value systems that uh that is totally part of the rich you know mm-hmm. and crapping you know giving it but he does it without crassness that's the that's the thing that's really kind of he treats them gently like they're like they're his children like you don't mm-hmm. want to upset them too much because they play a role just like everyone else does in society you know whether you want to overthrow them or not there is a there is a a point a point for these people to play and uh he just finds he finds it all delight delightful and charming the way these people act and so you can tell there is a bit of a uh, a softness to them because probably at this point in his career he is one of them whether he likes it or not you always become the thing that you uh, you hate eventually <laughs> you know you start out as yeah. a punk rebel and you end up uh, you know exactly you know how it goes david you were a punk can, guy <laughs> oh absolutely and now i'm a social worker for a faith-based nonprofit. you know i i, I totally <laughs> understand the journey you know and and the, at the same time i i'd like to say think that i'm aware of my own kind of foibles and blind spots or at least try to be, be open to that and i think that's another part of the genius of this of this film is that Bunuel is kind of speaking not only to his own class, his own social set, but to, to younger people. I mean, the fact that his collaboration with Carrier was was pretty prolific, but Carrier was also a significantly younger man. So he could bring mm-hmm. the perspective of a of a younger generation into the into the filmmaking, into the sensibility. And Bunuel was open to that. He's not one of these oh kids nowadays. You know, he's this resentful old griper. You know, oh yeah. He, uh, he understands that you know times change and fashions change. You know, he went through his angry phase. He went through his incendiary blow it all up, mm-hmm. and that's the Viridianas, the Exterminating Angels, the Simon of the Deserts, and even some of those later fifties films uh, in Mexico. Los Olvidados. There's there's a lot of fire in that film. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, here he's mellowed out. Uh, but I, I do want to go back to some of your, your technical insights. As a, a, I, I, to me, the editing is just another absolutely remarkable because you've got all of these non sequiturs, all of these sequences that really ought not line up. And yet it is smooth as silk. You just float mm. from one to the other. Uh, you've got the dreams nested within the dreams. And uh, it's just, it, it it's a very easy thing to take for granted or just to assume, well, that's just how it is. But I have to think, you know, especially when you're filming these 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 stories and pieces and fragments, the actors don't even really see the big picture until it's all put together. Uh, what do you have to say just about the the uh, the accomplishment there of, of of making this film flow as smoothly as it did? Well, that's uh that that comes down to once again is years of experience. I mean, because the way that he he pieces together these movies before they even before they're even filmed like he has everything down he doesn't uh i think it was a uh, delphine secret says something along the lines of there was nothing wasted you know that if he calls action and then cut that's all that's going in there there's not going to be anything anything no fat no no extra because yeah. he he has a vision of how he wants it to go and so that editing that you're talking about, it's absolutely fantastic because you have lots of hard cuts, but he does all these fantastic sound transitions to help smooth over the hard cuts. He does this. And I wish people did it. They don't do it anymore. I think they stopped doing it in the seventies is these, uh, uh, throw the camera out of focus and then Mm -hmm. cut to the next seed and bring the camera back into focus as a transition. That is fantastic. That is one of my yeah. favorite things. And it's such a visual thing from a certain time period. They don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. is like seamless. But uh, there's another fantastic cut where uh, the, uh, 
the sergeant or the, the the person that's running the uh the exercises he says something like oh come to my house oh by the way it's rue and then he says the name of the street and the number 77 and to transition into that party you cut to the street sign the number and then you're in the party yeah and it's as he's saying it so it's not him saying it then us showing it and then us going into the party he's saying it as we transition into the party so that transition which should be jarring because it's all of a sudden we're cutting to a random street sign a random number then we're inside we've now used an audio cue to kind of smooth that whole thing over Mm -hmm. and the transition is fast because it's not a it whip pans onto the name whip pans onto the number then we're in the house and so he does that a lot he doesn't use a stereotypical language in this film he doesn't do everything by the book he uses lots of experimental editing which is super fun because this movie is an experimental film in terms of kind of what it's going for. It's kind of playing in the realm of dream logic, but at the same time, as a old surrealist, he's almost also making fun of the dream logic of films because mm-hmm. instead of having these dreams be super revealing or crazy, I, I always think back to uh, the uh, Salvador Dali uh, design dream sequences from uh Spellbound. Spellbound. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Hitchcock Spellbound. And I think like they're so weird. I no one dreams like that. I've never dreamed like that. <laughs> right. It's, it's it's very visually flamboyant yeah. with with Dolly's yeah. kind of artistic flourish and painterly touches. Exactly. But that's not how dreams really are. You're yeah, right, and right. Buñuel's doing dreams how they are. You're there, you're talking to a friend, your friend disappears, your mom shows up, you're talking to your mom. Next thing you know, your your another friend shows up, you go to look for them they're not there. And then that's the end of your dream. And the way that the, everyone is captivated by this dream to the point where like one of the, one of the other soldiers says, Ooh, tell the one about the train. Now the dream you had about the train. (laughs) And everyone's like, yeah, tell that one. No, we don't have time for that. And it's, 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 uh, it occurs. It's, there's two points where people are telling their dreams. And then there are at least four dreams within dreams, within Mm -hmm. dreams Mm -hmm. throughout the film as well, which, it's funny because if you use that as an explanation in most films, like if you have like something crazy happening, they wake up and it's a dream. It's a cop out. But the way totally, that he right. just keeps layering the dream up in a dream within a dream, it makes the whole movie basically a dream that the police officer had from arresting the, the people he just arrested. Mm-hmm. Like if you follow the logic it's 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 someone who we not even in the story is the, is the person who's dreaming this all up and and then meanwhile <laughs> you have this cast yeah. of characters wandering the streets uh going yeah. from place to place it's almost like they're they're an acting troupe jo- going from one dream to the next and starring in these people's dreams and it's a uh, it, it, you know I, I heard someone describe it as it's like a some sort of kind of a not hell, but uh, some sort of uh, purgatory that they're in, just traveling. <laughs> this endless place loop, place. right? Right. Yeah. David, all for the sake of an evening's entertainment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> look, look what we'll go to just to not have to eat at home. Um, but uh, one time, David, I was in uh, I was in Colombia. My wife is Colombian, okay. and uh, we went to go visit a a very well to do relative of hers. They wanted mm. to invite me because it was my first time in Colombia. They wanted me to invite me to their farm. Their farm is called Silencio. It's up in the mountains and it's high enough in the mountains that the clouds go through the farm. So we're eating dinner in the clouds. And at some point they say, let's go for a walk. So it's 
all these people in their fineries walking through cow fields. And all I could think about was this movie. The whole yeah. time I'm walking with them, I'm going, oh, my God, it's yeah. real. Everything yeah. that Budwell has done is completely true. This is None of this is fantasy. This is actually how people behave. <laughs> and this is bizarre <laughs> as hell. And then at the end of the walk, we got picked up in cars and driven back to the house. And I was just like, this is insane. I've never experienced something like this before. But now I know that anytime I see this movie, I totally relate it to that time I ate lunch at Silencio. And uh, wow. it's absolutely fantastic. That's a fantastic an- anecdote. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Travis. Well, uh, our time is about up. I want to give a little bit of material for our next couple guests to talk about and kind of keep the episode length manageable. But uh, what a wonderful conversation this has been. Any final comments or, or summary statements you want to make about this film or anything along that line? Um, I think one of the other things that always sticks out to me is any time that the characters are talking about serious matters. There's this huge sound effect that comes in and drones uh, everything out. Oh, yes, yes. So kind and, of a Godardian. He was doing that kind of stuff around the same time. Yeah, there. it's almost uh, like, hey, so this is the yeah. part where they get serious, but that's not what we're focusing on. Don't get caught up in a plot. That's not important. I'm just right. going to drown this out, and then let's go back to the frivolous ideas of these of what these people consider important. And I just I love that. I love how self-aware yeah. that is that it takes that chance to just be like, you know, we don't need it. And it's great because it does it twice. And then on the third time it does it, it's literally the person can't hear what they're saying and then ask them to repeat it. And we get the information. So it's almost like you're waiting for that third time happens. And you're like, okay, it's the same thing I'm used to, but it's not. It's also pulled out from underneath. (laughs) And I love that Boonwell has allowed the audience the common courtesy of figuring things out for themselves. And that's I miss that so much in movies nowadays. Yeah. Um, uh, trusting your audience and allowing them to kind of come at it their own way. And so it's why it's constantly revisitable is yeah. you can go back and see it and it changes. Now I'm 40, 45, 46, 47 years old at this point, And it has a totally different meaning to me than in the, when I was 20 and it was f- active. It felt like a movie of rebellion. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of weirdness, not for its own yeah. sake, but just to sort of expand the boundaries and and just kind of break the rules. Now yeah. it's it's a very, uh, yeah, genteel in in all the best ways. It's, it it's, is. It's not. It's not really trying to blow you out of the water. It's no. just basically making his statement, his wry observations, and you know, and giving us the chance to make those discoveries for ourselves at our own time. I think Bunuel would have had a great yeah. career as a stand-up comic, just making those observational humors. I, I have a hunch that he probably was a, a stand-up comic in his real-life uh, relationships with people. Again, I, I got that from watching some of those supplemental features. Oh, he's so people fun. just really loved being around him, yep. and it was just a good time. So, Well, it's been a good time too, Travis. Yes. So thank you for your time tonight. Look oh. forward to connecting with you and Matthew on the uh, complete... In the, in the near future, I definitely got a few Nesavarda titles that uh, catch my fancy, and we'll see if we can connect. Uh, when are you going to expect to start publishing some new episodes there? Um, I believe uh, we wanted to bank six before we started releasing, so we could probably uh, you'll probably see some starting around March. Fantastic. Well, that's something to look forward to, and I will be happy to reconnect you, uh, with you again when the time is right. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate you having me on. Excellent. Thanks a lot.
Okay, it's time to do segment number three of this uh, special coverage of The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, directed by Louis Bunuel. Louis Bunuel, excuse me. I still have an old habit of doing that from many years ago when I first learned about this director. I always called him Louis. Maybe I heard somebody else do that, but that's not how it is. But anyways, uh, enough of that little sidebar. Let's go ahead and welcome our third guest, Brad McDermott. Brad, hello and welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, David. Uh, it's great to be back. But just a quick question for you. Have you eaten yet? Well, <laughs> you know, I got a couple bites in until I was interrupted and had to get to get to this podcast. So I haven't had my full meal, but, uh, you know, I, I'm getting by. <laughs> I'll always survive. Always interrupted. We're always interrupted. Yeah, there is always, always <laughs> something barging in. Yeah. So, well, yes, as you can imagine, we've, we've been definitely talking about this film with a couple segments i know you haven't had a chance to hear what our other guests have said but uh that's perfectly fine with me i'm really interested in your take you know you and i have talked about a lot of movies over the years i don't think we've ever really gotten into bunuel no or even into surrealism per se although Mm -hmm. you know there's been some some borderline overlaps there but tell me just a little bit about your history with discrete charm and uh, bunuel in general and we'll take it from there um, sure. So I saw this film in college, um, you know, like during my college years, they were sort of name dropping a few of the like art house directors of the 60s and 70s and like, oh, just look at this. You should see this. And so um, around the summer break, I was always uh, renting these movies from the library on VHS and <clears throat> giving them a watch. And this was one of them, right? The Bunuel. And I think it, I think it's pretty good, safe to say that Discreet Charm is definitely one of his like crown jewels when we think mm-hmm. his filmography so um so yeah I, I that's where around when i had watched it and i think this was actually my first brunwell as well because i i remember bel de jour was later and exterminating angel was later in a really really bad vhs that was like almost unbearable to watch mm-hmm. so, that criterion blu-ray of that film is amazing but anyways that's different um but yeah this was my uh first introduction to um, the world of Louis Benwell. So what did you think? Uh, you know, did it make a big impression on you? Was it kind of like, eh? What it, made a, it made a very big impression on me because there's just um, so many scenes that sort of just stick with you. And and like you, I, I had a hard time, like it's been a while since I have seen this movie. Not since then, but it's still been a while. And like, you just don't remember the order of it all you don't remember like what kind of levels of reality we are working on here or, or any at all but you remember the scenes like you re- i remember the theater scene like vividly i remember like they're at the table and then all of a sudden the curtain parts exactly. and there's an audience out there right, right. exactly yeah. like you just just remember that so well and like i remember the um the first story of you know the soldier and, and his dead mom and planning mm-hmm. to kill the father and like um <clears throat> Yeah, I remember, uh, um, uh, well, obviously the violence at the end, but oh, and uh, um, but the ambassador is like sharpshooting people out of his window. Like, these are just <laughs> yeah. so like, what the fuck moments that um, you, they just stick with you. So um, and, and like the just the general tone of satire of, you know, making fun of sort of the upper middle class sticks with you as well sure you know uh, you know it's definitely an, an easy target in some ways i mean going all the way back to the silent era you know lampooning the rich For and sure. the hoity-toity has been kind of a staple of comedy uh here it just sort of sneaks up on you in such a kind of a you know unexpected way in, in some ways i mean obviously at this point especially when the film first came out Luis bunuel had a very you know uh 
big reputation as far as a historically significant filmmaker. Uh, but you're right. This is the one that really kind of put him as much on the mainstream map as he ever was. You know, did win an Academy Award. It was pretty universally praised by the critics. It just sort of seemed to hit right at the right time. And of course, 72, we're talking about as new Hollywood is kind of maybe in its full swing and people are just kind of exploring and experimenting with what cinema can do. Well, obviously, Bunuel had been one of those kind of boundary breakers for decades. Uh, but here, it, it sort of sneaks up on you because it has this kind of very respectable presentation. It's in color. The sets, the decor, the fashions are all very, you know, top notch. And I think, you know, the way that that's all executed is what truly uh, lends itself to making such a big impact because you, you didn't exactly see it coming, especially when you're first settling in to watch what seems to be just kind of a comedy of manners. And then it just right. kind of goes in these weird directions. Because, I mean, Bunuel frames it exactly as that sort of banal, I mean, banal is a strong word, but like he, it's not a, it's not a stylish film. Like there isn't, this isn't a film where you feel like uh, visually and even some of its sequences uh, that he is, you know, intending to, to uh, add his own like typical style. He shoots it very matter of factly, but Mm -hmm. that in, in itself is sort of the style, right? right? If you shoot surrealism matter of factly it enhances that surrealism because you it's so much more absurd you just feel that these people are just going about their business in this like typical sort of chamber room dramas we've seen films like this before of just people bouncing off of each other in rooms um and the camera doesn't do anything super expressive right it um, it goes, it tracks between all of these conversations in the foreground and background very effectively, but there isn't any sort of like high style that he's adding to any of that. This, the style in itself is the mixture of these outrageous elements with uh, the ordinary elements, which is sort of the the crux of surrealism and why it's so effective. Yeah, and you're a filmmaker yourself. Uh, what do you have to say just about you know Bunuel's techniques? I mean, there are some interesting camera movements. I mean, he uses zooms, he uses some tracking shots. Um, it's it's kind of like he's got kind of a mastery of the basic vocabulary of filmmaking, but he uses it in that kind of slightly subversive manner. Yep, definitely. I I think I mean you know, you just cannot knock him as a director. He is masterful. But like what I I really noticed and loved on this watch um, in is just how reluctant he is to shoot close-ups and when he does, therefore, a very specific purpose. So he's, like I had mentioned how the camera constantly is tracking through these rooms in the foreground and background and all these conversations. He's keeping a lot of this film um, social, right? This is a, uh, a satire about... Uh, social, you know, behavior among this upper middle class. So it's always going to be in these wides of all of these characters bouncing off of each other. And in keeping it social means that people have to reinforce these, these rules, these codes that this, this type of this class lives by. So visually representing that by keeping it as wide as possible, keeping it as public as possible, keeping various conversations in the same shot um, is part of that idea. And he only punches for close-up, again, when he's selling something that's very specific and to very effect. Like the, the stories that we get, the ghost stories, right? He is, zooms in on 
the, the those close-ups as those characters tell us these ghost stories. The, mm-hmm. the first of the soldier in the cafe, the second, um, the other, it's the other soldier who is like the bombed out streets and the ghosts of all his friends and his mom. And then the third one in the jail of the ghost of the former prisoner. So he's using that for an effect. And um, also the, the, uh, the, um, the priest who becomes the gardener, right? So that's mm-hmm. a very specific thing. Um, and then the one I love the most is actually at the end when um, the sister who's always drunk all the time starts talking about <laughs> yes. the horoscope to um, to the ambassador. And like, that's such a, uh, a, a pointed effect of like, Bunuel is making a specific statement here about that banality to someone at the amb- like the ambassador who should not be that amba- a- a banal. He has real responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and speaking of close-ups, I was thinking about that with that same character, Florence, the younger sister played by Boulogier. In the very beginning of the film, when the guests first show up to the Seneschal's household, uh, that's the couple um, and, and the ambassador and the younger sister, um, they're, they're kind of kind of chit-chatting amongst themselves uh, kind of unexpectedly waiting for their hostess to arrive they note that there's no fire the table's not set but bull ogier just kind of sort of circles around the group and she just comes right up into the camera and kind of was rolling her eyes at this again banal chatter behind her um and and you sort of you get the first trace of a character there. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's kind of where's the drinks at? <laughs> you know, yes. where's the beverages? <laughs> where where can I help myself to the bar? Um, but but just the fact that her face just kind of emerges into the into the the the, the screen so prominently, especially I'd imagine seeing this on a big screen theater, uh, it just kind of gives you that little disorienting sense, like there's something a little unusual going on here. And and even the ambassador showing her. Uh, a little bit later on in the sequence, the the this is the world and this is the this is the zodiac, you know. So he's right. kind of setting that up, and then she's kind of completing that cycle at the very end. There, very interesting continuities, but little things that I, it took me several viewings to pick up on how some of those different pieces fit together. But well, again, you know, Bunuel constructing all that in his mind and then executing it like that. Yeah, exactly. Like he's she's almost kind of a framework, and he's uh, he's setting her up as kind of the fringe outsider of Mm -hmm. this group, the one who's sort of tagged along because of her more important sister, and then the one who can sort of see all the bullshit that this is, right? She's the one that gets drunk easily. She's the one that'll smoke the marijuana, um, despite like the people who are selling (laughs) drugs seeming like, oh, drug addicts are the worst. And I'm like, you're the one selling the drugs. She'll be like, I'll partake into it. What the fuck? And then, Yeah. yeah, at the end as well. She's she's kind of the one that's like again here on the fringes looking in, and she's commenting. the yeah, and she's the younger generation again. I think uh, re- remembering that Bunuel is in his early seventies at the time of making this film, and we've already said in a f- few earlier segments, you know, almost presumably retired, even as in his own mind, he was yes. kind of thinking, okay, I'm I'm kind of past it, but the fact that he could sort of be almost checked out of his career or just thinking like, you know, I've done my bit. Uh, and yet he comes back and delivers such a tour de force. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, the the three films in this box set are great. And it's astonishing that it's a director sort of in the 70s. Usually we kind of think people are in their primes and, you know, their middle ages, early. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but there's, you know, a few of those great artists that kept doing better and better work as they even got older. And Boonwell's definitely one of them. You know, and it, it, since he never really put himself through the, the ringer of being a commercial filmmaker, I mean, you could say some of his Mexican films, I guess, were commercial in terms of the Mexican film industry. And he's a director for hire, taking work where he can get it. But he really wasn't a guy who got sort of consumed in the politics and the business and the the bottom line, you know, um, kind of all the maneuvering that it takes to kind of keep your head afloat in a, in a very competitive and commercialized film industry. He found a way to sort of stay outside of that. And I wonder if that contributed to some of his longevity. He just didn't get burned out in the same way that other directors who are kind of in the, you know, tooth fang and claw, you know, dog eat dog world of, of uh, Hollywood or even European you know, traditional cinema. I don't know. You're, you're in the business a little bit yourself. Any <laughs> thoughts along that line? I mean, I just think because he was such a anti-establishment, like yeah. he was, he was such a, someone who, whose second nature was just to reject uh, whatever the status quo is, whatever, uh, you know, the, yeah, whatever the confines of whatever uh, industry uh, or institution he was involved with is just as a surrealist, I think your your instinct is just to throw it all out. So I think that kept him young. Um, I think that kept him spry. And I mean, you know, his, his the writer he was collaborating with on these three films was significantly younger than mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. And they forged a great friendship and a great collaboration. And um, and I think if your if your mind is like that, then you will you can continuously be inspired and, and create great work. Yeah. You know, we've talked a little bit about the, about the humor and the kind of the, uh, the way that Bunuel staged scenes to kind of, you know, create a little bit of that droll effect, but there are also, you know, some pretty significant uses of violence. You know, there's, there's blood, there's, there's killing, there's, there's death. And, it, and that, those scenes really permeate the film, but it is interesting in my own memory. And I thinking about the film, I, I tend to, gravitate towards more of those kind of amusing sec- sequences but but let's just talk, talk a little bit about sort of the other side of it you know the, the harshness and, and the violent undertones uh which in many ways become explicit sometimes they're used for humorous effects sometimes it's like wow if you think about it this is some pretty dark tragic stuff mm-hmm. but what, what is your take on just kind of the way Bunuel interweaves both the kind of the humorous interplay as well as the you know real life and death type of situations that are portrayed on screen. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, when I was younger and saw this film, like you, all of that stuff is just like black humor. It's black satire. And then you kind of just treat it as that. So it's like, it's funny when the, the, at the very end of the film, when they finally get a chance to eat something that the terrorists gun them all down, like that's perfect. But then watching it this time, I mean, maybe because I'm older and just and and sort of more aware of the world and of the history of the world, like the the ambassador to Miranda and the slowly the slow reveal as to how horrible things are in this fictitious country of Miranda, which is, uh, you know, a South American country. uh, And as we know, there was a lot of. upheaval going on in the southern in southern american countries a lot of dictators um a lot of yeah guerrilla warfare murder terrorism terrorism and hidden nazis right yeah, that's right. where they all went and so the slowing the slow reality that everything is not great in miranda and this man who represents this country to france 
is like living the high life here, even like <laughs> using his his status as a way of selling the gr- the drugs grown in Miranda to mm-hmm. the French people for his own personal gain, just like how disgusting and corrupt he is. This this the reality of this film starts to emerge. So you're mm-hmm. talking about like the violence and the corruption and the, all the horrible things that that slowly start the the reality of this situation starts to build in the background almost as more and more of that's as uh, being revealed. And it's it's fascinating to me that he doesn't front load it. Right. Yeah. Right. This isn't I- a film that confronts those things directly. It confronts it backhandedly with um, all of these jokes <laughs> and all of yeah, these yeah. absurd com- uh, comments on the idleness of these people that all of this serious, terrible stuff is happening in the world and they could not be bothered with it. All they want to do is eat. Well, yeah. And, and, and the fact that it's not just the ambassador using his diplomatic uh, advantage there in his satchel bag to smuggle the drugs in mm-hmm. the Thevenos and the Seneschals, at least the husbands are all, you know, fully in on it that they, they right. are ex- exploiting not only their relationship, but, but their own people. They are mm-hmm. the ones who are selling to the commoners, you know, the, the chauffeurs who don't know how to properly don't know how to drink, drink a martini. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but you're right. And, and again, we've talked a little bit about um, Boone Well, you know what you might call mellowing as he's an older person at this point stage of life if maybe he had taken some of these plot elements and put them into like uh, a film around the time of viridiana or exterminating angel it would have come across as more confrontational more of that you know anger coming through at this point you know he's he seems almost resigned to it but he still wants to keep his audiences aware hey this stuff is happening and those upper crusts are you know, they're all in on the deal. Uh, and they're also, you know, screwing around with each other. And there's all kinds of infidelities happening, uh, despite the, um, you know, the unruffled surface appearances, everything's smooth. They get their digs on each other. They, they probably all know each other well enough to know that they're all conning each other as well. Right. But these are people who are very used to doing that stuff and getting away with it because they've kind of, both been born into and constructed and maintained this little bubble of of secrecy immunity and plausible deniability and it's so comfortable being so far removed from all yeah. of this right that's yeah. part of it and I, I i wonder too like yeah i think these films especially these la- three films in this box set that are at the end of his life i think that satire is even stronger from him not confronting it directly right mm-hmm. like i think it's even becomes even richer because it's it's all within the world of the people that he's making a mockery of rather than uh in a point of view of you know the terrorists like the the political activists in this film that are on the sort of out the on the skirts of it mm-hmm. you know that would be an entirely different film entirely that would be maybe a lesser satire like would those blows land as hard if it was Mm -hmm. more from her point of view you know the um the times that Bunuel was living in there i mean there was a lot of political revolution you've already kind of mentioned some of that i think he's recognizing and maybe even saying to some of his younger fans or or some of the would-be revolutionaries of the time that you know cinema by and of itself is not going to overthrow the system it's not going to smash the patriarchy or the the uh, corrupt ecclesiastical establishment or any of the other powers that be uh the people themselves will have to institute change if they can 
But in the meantime, let's just try to go through life with our eyes a little bit more open and not delude ourselves into thinking that everything's as proper and, and uh, you know, well-managed as, as the authorities would, would like us to think of there. Yeah, that's, I think that's his, uh, you know, modus operandus here in the, in the end of his life. We, I often think like filmmakers when, when they're still making films at this sort of late period in their life often make that sort of grand statement film Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. this is my, me looking back on my entire life and this is what I want to say about it. Um, and there are some great ones. Um, and I think that these three films are his in his own way of of saying that. Yeah, yeah. Now, I have not seen it yet, but you've seen Triangle of Sadness, right? No, I haven't. Oh, you haven't? Okay. Well, I'm going to have to figure out how some of these more recent times um, satires of the well-to-do might compare with this. So yeah, I might even cut that little comment out there because I thought you had, but... Um, you know, let me let me just ask you about about the uh, how maybe this film or Bunuel might have influenced some of your own art. And I know you do other types of art. You know, your painting and, and illustration and all of that. Uh, but what's what's Bunuel's impact been on just kind of your own artistic temperament, sensibility, you know, expression? Um, I mean, definitely. My first film, I would say, uh, it was a short called Health Class, and in which I used um, surrealism um, to confront uh, issues about, uh, you know, kids not being properly educated, uh, mm-hmm. sex education, right? Mm-hmm. And my own personal experience of sort of not being prepared for being a gay man when I was in high school. And I used surrealism to bring that across. So I have these uh, anatomical diagrams in it that come to life and have sex with each other. And it's all <laughs> okay. done very comedically with like yeah. heightened sound effects and absurdity. Um, and sort of these things are demonstrating the knowledge that I was, was denied, that was denied to me that I could have used um, mm-hmm. coming into my adulthood. So um, that kind of absurd, absurd comedy and the way that you use surrealism to, uh, interplay with realism to create this uh, strange new world that is familiar and also unsettling. And also the way that uh, surrealism is used to say something that is best that people would want to leave unsaid. Um, mm. I, I think I get that from Bunuel. I don't know if that's a, a highfalutin thing to say, but no, no, that's great. <laughs> definitely, definitely that's, that's, I can see him there. <laughs> well, and I guess one of my, my interest in kind of doing these little interviews, if you will, for this episode and, and maybe exchanging some other impressions with, with others who I know have been impacted by this film is yeah, this feels to be like one of the more significant, you know, kind of gateways, if you will, into, you know, art house film, especially for, for younger people. Uh, who are looking for movies that are just a little bit off the beaten path that, you know, kind of expand the, the, the range of ideas or, or how material can be handled. Um, you know, again, I've talked about the accessibility of this film and, and how it does kind of have this, this ability to, I don't know, just, just kind of make an impression that, that, uh, you know, shows, shows maybe younger people who are just, used to more commercial types of cinema just this this broader scope of possibilities and uh it seems like it had a similar effect on you as well you know, some of our other guests talked about seeing it in film school and college i myself saw it in my kind of very early 20s you know on, on the big screen but you know a long time ago and that's where i was more impressed with just kind of how 
uh, you know, kind of bizarre and, and how fluid it was and just, you know, how it did seem to kind of be shaking its fist a bit at, at the rich and, and the high and mighty. Uh, but I've really, it, it's one of those films I've, I've had a lot of, you know, revisits with over the years and have just grown in my appreciation and admiration for it in, in so many other ways. It is a very accessible film. Like we did, we talked about how, uh, matter of fact, he directs. Um, it's you know, there's not a lot of wild tangents like a Terrence Malick film or something like that. That right. you kind of have to be in the certain mood set for that. You can slide into this really easily. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you know those like linking films. I like to call them like uh, films that uh, people can access. Uh, from like you know your typical hollywood fair like you said to find something like slightly on the edge slightly different to sort of get them to higher art films i think they're so important because that's they're the films that pull people up right they pull they encourage people to think uh more about the cinema that they're watching to expect more of the cinema they're watching and to keep mm-hmm. exploring and to just not sort of settle in complacency for the same thing over and over again. So, um, you know, Kubrick was a big one. That's a big one. A lot of people talk about film school. Wells gets a lot of mention. Yeah. The, the, you know, these are certain, you know, when I was growing up in film school, it was a certain type, like they were ty- typically white male directors, yeah. except for something like Kurosawa. Um, Terry right. Gilliam kind of comes to mind in that same company again. Yeah, yeah just kind yeah, of Terry he throws Gilliam. all these random curveballs, and you know he'll mix in some animation and you know scenes that are much more in the special effects, you know, kind of weird weirdness world, even than than Bunuel. Yeah, um, I mean, Twelve Monkeys yeah. was a big watershed yeah. film for me growing yeah, up. Absolutely too, so. right, right, <laughs> right. Well, any other comments or any other scenes that maybe stood out to you that you want to make sure we connect, you know, connect with before we wrap this part up? Um, I just wanted to just the the image of them wandering. I just is just so burned into I think everybody's mind when they watch this film. And yeah. um, I watched it with my partner Fred last night, mm-hmm. and he had mentioned how much he loved that. And it, he'd seen know, it before. He had never seen this film. Oh, before, so this no. is his first so, impression. This is his okay, first great. Time. Yeah. Um, and he's he's uh, he comes from a theater background, and he loves absurdist theater. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That so that kind of idea. I mean, this whole film is like absurdist theater. Definitely oh, it comes yeah. from that sort of that Beckett and mm-hmm. uh, that um, uh, UNESCO. That's yeah, the Sartre. Yeah. But he he loved that because it was that kind of idea. The, they're in this like purgatory, this walk to oblivion. <laughs> they're they're well dressed in the super hurry to go nowhere. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it is. It's it's a very very effective kind of metaphor for really so much of what we're all all kind of doing in life in our own way. We're all yes. just kind of wandering down that road, um, especially as you've gotten a little bit older. As an adult, sometimes, you know, you've made your dis- significant decisions or you've kind of established yourself in a particular role or function in society, and you're just going to kind of keep on plowing that path for as long as it holds out. <laughs> and, and and in these characters here, you sort of see them in, in so many ways going through motions, you know, 
conducting relationships that are, you know, somewhat superficial, but they, they have to be done. You just, you have to, you know, proceed and and fulfill your, your part of the the contract or the script. (laughs) And, and uh, this, this film just kind of brings all of that benign hypocrisy to the surface. But, uh, you know, the other thing too, is just how, how well it's constructed, how this all sort of came alive in Boonwell. And uh, we'll give Carrier his his credit as well. I don't know which scenes are attributable to which, but they were a very dynamic partnership. But you don't get the sense that there were deleted scenes or there's extra, you know, stuff on the cutting room floor that would make for good supplements. I mean, you get the finished product and that's what you get. Everything yeah. else on the disc is all interviews and talk pieces. There's no uh, you know segments that Boonwell filmed and then decided later on to scrap. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. It feels like what was written down is everything that was filmed and nothing more. Excellent. All right, Ray. Well, why don't you give us a little update? I mean, every time we do a a pod together, I kind of give you a a chance to fill us in on whatever's going on in your career or whatever your your artistic pursuits are these days. I know I've been seeing a lot of your uh, visual art uh, popping up in your social media feed, but just tell tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, sure. So um, I have been focusing on my my paintings and my drawings. I mean, sort of ever since the pandemic, that's kind of uh, what I've been doing. And um, I was in a show um, in September, October um, at uh, Maison de Poivre, which is a gallery out in Prince Edward County, um, out just to east of Toronto here. Mm-hmm. So for their uh, positive masculinity show that they held, um, I had three pieces there. Um, and a drawing and I sold one piece. So that was oh, exciting for me. There you go. That's that nice was like perk. the biggest, <laughs> biggest sale so far. So um, I'm going to be in their show once again uh, for 2023, um, which they've moved it to June. So it kind of aligns oh, okay. with pride uh, yeah. this year. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And I'm just going to keep working away and, and that, that's my plans for 2023 so far. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to talk some well with me. It's always a pleasure getting together with you, Brad. So thanks for your contributions today. And no we'll problem. be talking to you soon. It's always a pleasure. Definitely. David, thanks so much for having me again. Okay, fourth segment of this podcast, the dream within the dream within the dream, but which one's the reality? We'll find out. Uh, I'm here with my fourth guest, Dave Eves. Welcome back to Criterion Reflections. So good to connect with you. Yeah, yeah, it's good to connect with you as well, David. Uh, the, the party of Dave's and David's here. <laughs> I, I just want to know whose dream am I in right now? I, I've lost track of the narrative here. I think we'll have to look at the book that you're reading in, okay. in bed and, and see if we can you know, make the, out the uh, French translation. Yeah, there. are we in the police chief section right now? That was just trying to make sure that I I, I know the, the, the chronology of our of our dream sequence here. Let me pick the lamb chop out of my teeth and we'll figure this out. <laughs> okay. Wait, you got to eat something? I've been starving for just, 90 well, minutes now. Just a bite, but I'll tell just you. <laughs> Just a nibble. <laughs> and then I was rudely interrupted. But yeah. hey, it is great to get you back on the show. The last time you you were on Criterion Reflections, we talked some Zadoichi. In fact, I think that's the, the two appearances you've done I, yeah, here. This is, yeah, this is the first time that we're chatting about something that is not Zadoichi related. 
<laughs> well, let's broaden our horizons into the world of Luis Buñuel. And Buñuel that captures the entire gambit of cinema. Essentially, yeah, I, I think I think it all fits in between those two poles, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you had a chance uh, a, a few years ago, actually, wasn't it like five years ago, you and James Hancock did a kind of a quick speed dash through the latter career. Of yeah, Luis we, we did a mega episode on Boonwell's later period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think mo- it was basically all the things that he did with uh, produced by Serge Silberman. Silberman. I can't. I, yep. I this is me I think not, it was from what Diary of a Chambermaid forward something onwards, like that. Exactly. Yeah, so it's yeah. like what six or seven films, you know, yeah. lots of those things. And Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie obviously fits in with that. Mm-hmm. And I would have told you that we did that last year, but uh time <laughs> makes fools of us all. <laughs> it does have a strange way of looping around and making it seem like uh it was just yesterday. You Indeed. Know? Indeed but, uh, and I, I had a similar experience uh, last year, maybe it was at the end of 2021, maybe a little over a year ago now that uh, Trevor and I kind of did a, a little bit, a little bit more expanded. We only covered the last three films, the ones that are in that Criterion box set, the, the three films by Luis Benuel. Mm-hmm. But I've obviously had a lot of chance to talk about uh, this film with my other guests. So I'm going to kind of give you the, 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 you know, put you in the driver's seat there, oh boy. And, and and basically, um, you know, maybe reiterating some of the things you said. I, I actually did listen to your Discreet Charm section. I didn't listen to the whole podcast night, but I kind of got a little. Uh, gist of what you had to say, but we're going to give you a chance to expand and un- unfold that a little bit because I know you had a lot of material to cover. But let's just start with the question I've been asking all my guests: Is what was your first encounter with this film, and kind of give us a little overview of your ongoing cinematic relationship with the films of Luis Buñuel? I would love to. And apologies to anyone listening that is hearing a repeat of this stuff. I don't know what I said before in that episode. <laughs> I, it's It's been years, apparently, since that happened. And I have not re-listened to it. But uh, Boonwell is a filmmaker that I first encountered when I was in film school. Uh, there was a course that everyone else was dreading taking called European Cinema. And I thought, well, what can be the worst that could happen in European cinema? And a lot of people were not expecting a lot of experimental films. They, they were very used to, you know, standard Hollywood fare. And I'll admit at that point in my movie watching career, I had mostly been exposed to the standard Hollywood fare and Akira Kurosawa. So that was as far reaching as my international scope had come. I think before that And it was class, probably Samurai Kurosawa, is that exactly, correct? Exactly, Samurai Kurosawa. Yeah, no one's first Kurosawa is like dreams or or Ikuru, I'm sure someone (laughs) listening is like, well, that was my first Kurosawa. But when you are like a 17, 18-year-old white male, you're probably most likely going to be going towards the samurai films and then hopefully later expand your horizons to the other great cinema of Kurosawa. But outside of that, I had not really seen a lot of French films, a lot of European films in general. And uh, the second week of the class, they the, the film the teacher just threw us into the deep end with uh, Unchen Andalou, followed mm. directly afterwards by Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, and mm. I was enraptured by this film. <laughs> it, it was it, it's it's like a Monty Python sketch that you can tell like it has a direction. It's trying to say something. It's angry. It has this 
this overarching theme behind it it's not just it's not absurdist like monty python is it's surrealist Mm -hmm. there is a point and purpose behind everything that's going on even if you as the viewer can't completely decode everything that's going on and i think the things that work the best are the ones you're like you know what maybe i'm just going to take a step back and not try to decode this but the entire film it's almost like the antithesis of a beautiful film it it's very washed out lighting uh, very much at certain times looks like you're on a TV set. Mm-hmm. You look through windows and you can tell, well, that's just a very clearly painted background. The artifice is both in your face and yet subtle. It's not trying to look beautiful. Boonwell himself hated to make his films look beautiful. It's it's incredible that you could do something like this and keep the viewer engaged the entire time while still very clearly having a point that you're trying to make while letting madness and absurdism not, I'm sorry, I just said it's not absurdist, but absurd mm-hmm. things happen. Surreal mm-hmm. things happen throughout without it seeming also like, oh, it was all a dream, even though it plays that <laughs> joke yeah, like yeah. four or five times within the film, but at no point do you ever feel like it's cheap. And you've never heard anyone make a joke like that work quite as well as the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie has. Yeah. So so how did the, uh, is, so, you, so you were enraptured, you, you kind of got Loved caught it. up in it and uh, couldn't wait to get back. Did you go on a further exploration of Benwell right afterwards or did it simmer for a while? Because I, I have to take it that you've, you've pretty much worked through at least the more easily accessible of his major works, right? You know what? Shockingly, I, I did not jump to, to, to watch any more of his films after this. It's almost like mm-hmm. it was like this one perfect thing. It's like, you well, the I, peaks, I, right? I the you, peaks. Yeah. Why, why, why go back and watch the rest? <laughs> and later I watched, I, I, I've watched pretty much all of his films that you can easily find now, which mm-hmm. is like, like the, the ones obviously that were discussed on wrong reel, his later period. I've seen a couple of his Mexican films. Um, Averdiana uh, is exterminating angel, assignment of the desert. This is where I would love to have opened up IMDb so I could go through his. But <laughs> well, well, yeah, you, you yeah. Milky Way, Tristana. Exactly, I mean, all, exactly. all the, all the all later the ones, right? Yes. And he's one of my favorite filmmakers. And there's still yeah. a few of the Mexican films out there that I've not been able to track down because some of them are very hard to get to. Uh, some of them, I am going to just pause real quick here because it's a great one. And the only way I was able to watch it was on an old VHS. What is that called? It is a Mexican one. And it is, oh, the criminal life of the of Archibald uh, de la Cruz. That's yes. a great one. Yes. Nazarene is a great one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he he's just got this wealth of film to to his credit. And it's amazing to see a filmmaker that is making masterpieces in the seventies when he got started in the thirties. You don't have too many filmmakers that are kind of reinventing themselves and changing their way of doing things as frequently as Boonwell has. Yeah, and also just all of the kicking around that he had to endure. I mean, this is not a guy who just sort of had a job in a studio and yeah. you know cranked out. You know, I'll do a couple commercials, I'll do a couple personal projects. I mean, it was kind of scratching and clawing for every gig he could get. Yeah, political persecution, the, the whole works. Yeah, well, that's what happens when when you do not like uh, fascist uh, Franco Spain. I don't blame him. I don't <laughs> yeah. blame him. Also, yeah. does not help when your first film uh, caused riots. Yeah, 
Yeah. Or was no, that was uh Lodge to Or caused the riots, right? Yeah, yeah, Everyone, yeah. That, that's where they were tearing the seats out of the theater and exactly. setting the curtains on fire and all exactly. of that, right? So, so as a young man, you're watching the discreet charm. Uh, how much of the sort of the social critique and uh, I mean, obviously, it's an easy lampoon of the rich and well-to-do. These are all you know beautiful people in their all their finery, all the accoutrements of upper middle class success and old money and all of that. How much did that kind of uh, social criticism and and satire connect with you was that was that part of the appeal or was it more just in the kind of the the, the dream logic the the flow of the story the unexpected novelties the surprise gags uh, i would say i would say the 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 the, uh, the language of the film spoke to me more than the social aspect of it at the mm-hmm. time as i've gotten older i've grown to appreciate that part as well but and obviously it wasn't it didn't go over my head I'm yeah. sure parts of it did. I was aware of it, but that's not what the draw was. And I think to that point there, something that did draw me in and something that I focused on is the fact that here is a film that has something to say, regardless of what it's saying, regardless of what it's saying. Mm-hmm. It's saying it in a way that is not, it's direct without being super direct. It is angry without yelling at you. It's mm-hmm. not trying to tell you that you've done something wrong. It's not preachy. It is simply just giving you this opinion in a way that is undeniable and you can't help but look at it and be like, well, he's not wrong. And just the fact that you can be so so both opaque and transparent at the same time, that you can have this criticism in a way that's both playful and funny, but you can also tell that there is legitimate anger behind it. It's, it's very... it's unique. You don't have a lot of filmmakers that are this, that have such a deft hand that are able to do this and make it work so well. Yeah. Some of the comments that we've had in previous segments and even Trevor and I kind of made the point is that this is the older Bunuel. He's a little bit more mellowed if you compare it to like Viridiana, Exterminating Mm -hmm. Angel. And so it is a film where you can almost be lulled in by the gentility of the satire. But even as I was rewatching a few scenes tonight, it's like, yeah, there is some pretty you know, there's some pretty intense scenes. I mean, the violence, I mean, there's death permeating so many of these scenes, Uh, you know, killings, random killings, political assassinations, revenge. Obviously you've got the segment of the priest who hears the dying man's confession and then blows him away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just like, yeah. So, you know, just when you think uh, Luis is kind of settling into his sunset years, he he's still he's still throwing the zingers at you, but you're right. He's not he's not clobbering you over the head. Uh, he's not howling, you know, empty uh, rage of protest. Um, he he's he's laying these messages out there, almost like little little time bombs that will maybe connect with you. As you said, you get older, you you maybe start recognizing some of the 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 significance, the the cultural context, the politics, the religion, the class you know, attentions, all of those things that are sort of droll and funny have that serious side to it. And and at the same time, though, despite all the zaniness that happens, Mm -hmm. and and I think it's by design that the most interesting parts of the movie are sometimes the most bland when they're just walking aimlessly Mm -hmm. through this, down a street in the middle of nowhere. And I, I think it almost makes the point better than anything else in the movie, just to show just how lost these people are mm-hmm. in this world that they have no place in, really, because they add nothing to it. 
And therefore, they're just aimlessly wandering around looking for their next meal because that's all that really matters to them. And not in the sense of like a starving person would who's just going to steal bread that needs to it needs to meet certain standards. It needs to meet certain classifications. Mm -hmm. It needs to be for pleasure, not for survival. Yeah, yeah. Even even the infidelities, there's there's, you know, obviously marital affairs or Mm -hmm. extramarital affairs going on here. But for what purpose? This there doesn't seem to be any real emotional connection between these people, whether yeah, the they're married binds, to each other or not, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, the only thing that binds these people together, aside from crime, is their status. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of all, all upholding the 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 framework because if you start to pick it apart, it all falls to pieces, and that's kind of what happens at the the dinner party, you know, mm-hmm. where which one? Ambas- <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I'm thinking of the one where the ambassador is there. It's it's a cocktail party, yeah. and there's all the chit chat going on, and then all of a sudden, uh, what a woman woman thinks the ambassador is about to leave. She says her husband wants to have a few words with him, and then it gets into this pretty grim and pretty nasty uh, culture clash. Basically, mm-hmm. old European money kind of sneering in a condescending way at this Latin intruder who, even though he may be wealthy, even though he may be part of the elite, he is still an inferior outsider, you know, in, in this exclusive milieu. And, and, uh, the, the old French money doesn't want him to forget that, you know, no. you are from this barbaric, you know, uncouth society that you'll never achieve, you know, the heights that we've attained here. In, in old Yet Europe. at the same time, some of the things that they're accusing him of are true because he right. is bringing oh. drugs into the country. Sure, sure. Yeah. So you've got this protectionism and. But, but at the same time, it's the, the people that are allowing him to do so. And they're profiting off it themselves, right? Exactly. They're ex- exactly. they're exploiting their own people, but exactly. they want to still maintain that hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, we're all partners in crime, but we are. But we're still better a, than a you cut are, above. even though even though we wouldn't have the crime if you didn't bring it to us. Also, bring us more drugs, please. But don't don't <laughs> yes. get too full of yourself. Uh, of of the purest quality, of course. We yes. do not want to cut corners or settle for some mediocre after you know after product. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, how about some scenes that stood out to you? Any any particular moments that uh, kind of you know continue to reward revisits? I, 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 I think I've seen this some oh, numerous yeah. times now. Yeah. I mean, it has one of my favorite funniest lines of any movie, which is "I don't know my lines." The, <laughs> yeah, I, I just yeah. love it. It's so it's it's not the reaction you would expect to happen for anyone who's not seen the film that's that's listening to this. One, why go watch it? Two, uh, just just that that entire zaniness of sitting down to a dinner scene and having a curtain open and discovering that you are on stage in front of a crowd of people, and not to question how did I get here, what is happening, but simply. I don't know my lines. It is a nightmare scenario. Well, yeah. And and the script that they're going from, there's something to do with kind of honor and valor. And and that's when the bishop kind of stands up and he recognizes he's sort of been caught in this moment mm-hmm. of hypocrisy. And so with great dignity, he walks off stage and the other actors start to do the same. And then there's that guy down in the kind of the little little booth there who's whispering the lines. <laughs> he's, he's trying he's to like, feed in the lines, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's about drugging them with a narcotic, you know, to, to convince <laughs> them that they're in the right place. So so yeah. even, even though they're kind of throwaway lines and they kind of get lost in the kind of shock and the, and the you know, the ironic twist of, of humor of this of this nightmare situation of you know you're on stage your pants are around your ankles and you mm-hmm. can't remember your lines but but even what's going on in that scene has kind of a uh, a, a serious undertone mm-hmm. uh, 
that again you you revisit those moments because of the you know the the ingenuity the uniqueness the the novelty but but there's even more context below that 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 Bunuel has thrown in figure mm-hmm. uh, you'll you'll find it sooner or later uh, that's there seems to be so much thought and attention to detail just permeating the whole film whereas a lot of these kind of random bizarro comedies are just like hey let's just point the camera screw around in front there and see what happens exactly and and our stoner midnight audience will just kind of go along with the gag right exactly and i I can definitely see that probably a lot of people were inspired by this and probably Mm -hmm. took in other directions but you have scenes that seem almost pointless like the priest just suddenly deciding oh i'm going to be the gardener i'm going to go dress in the gardener's clothes But the fact that when he's dressed poorly, Mm -hmm. the upper class treat him poorly. But when he comes back in his riches, uh, then suddenly he is of status, even though obviously a person of religion is supposed to be meek, is supposed to live a life of poverty. Yet when they appear as such, they suddenly get no respect from the the people (laughs) that they need to impress. And even though they should be impressing the poor, they're trying to impress the wealthy. Yeah, and the actual duties of the religious office, the theology, the sacraments, the things that a bishop actually does, those are of no importance whatsoever. Of course, he, he would it's much rather be steps. a gardener for the uh, for for the wealthy. He he is simply tending the the gardens of 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 people whom no one can appreciate but the people themselves. It's it's right. it's it's so. I don't know. It's very. It's a very 20th century take. I don't think you could make this movie today. If you uh, you can, but it would just be completely different because the world has changed in different ways. And I don't know if religion plays as big of a part in it as it did in Boonwell's world. Certainly not the ecclesiastical office exactly. and the, the, the status of a, of a bishop, a, a exactly. dignified VIP type of character. Well, talking of of making a movie like this nowadays, I mean, we're, to, we're well, this is. Uh, January 17th. So the Criterion Collection just made their announcements for the April slate. And one of the films that was, uh, you know, included to be released, uh, you know, a couple months from now is uh, Ruben Oslund's The Triangle of Sadness or just Triangle of Sadness. And, you know, I had ac- actually asked you if you'd had a chance to see this movie yet, because it, as I watched it just a few days ago, uh, the sort of modern day parallels, if you will, to discrete charm kind of came to mind. And sure enough, in the in the description, the blurb that they put on the, the back jacket of the upcoming release, uh, they mentioned Luis Bunuel by name. They name checked him in the description of the film and in the related films, uh, little uh, links that they put at the bottom of their post on the criterion.com website, they actually named discrete charm as, as a related film because of the thematic similarities. Are you sure and... they weren't just spying on our Twitter chat? <laughs> well, I'm, I know, I know they follow me and they, they kind of hang on the, the banter of us criterion, uh, you know, elite insiders there, but uh, perhaps, perhaps, but we, we, we tilted their hand a, a slightly, but the, the connections definitely are there. Um, but you haven't seen us. So I don't want to really derail the podcast I, I, I was, into it. I tried to sneak it in before. Yeah. Me, but I did not get a chance. And considering how much I like blind buying Criterions yeah. and watching them for the first time on disc, I'm actually kind of glad I haven't watched it yet. Even yeah, oh yeah. I, I'm sad I missed it in theaters. At least I get to watch it in 4K now. Yeah, on definitely. actual disc instead of trying to stream it. Yep. Well, 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 what's really interesting, and I'll just say one thing, is that it's it's not a satire of old money. It's really a satire of new money and, mm. and the incredible 
windfalls of wealth that certain classes of people are able to accumulate in the modern society. And uh, I don't want to spoil or, or, you know, unblind you too much, but uh, that's a very clear distinction in the targets, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of Bunuel's film, which really is about the aristocracy, yeah. you know, the inherited wealth uh, that perpetuates itself through all kinds of corruption and, and, and you know, dirty deals and, and just kind of the inertia, the, the ongoing momentum of, of having money. Uh, and using that money to make even more money. Well, you know, the economy and the world society has changed quite a bit. And uh, people come together and, and people find themselves flush with cash uh, from different walks of life. And so they they really do make an interesting study in contrast. And uh, definitely looking forward to more people seeing that film and, and seeing where the discourse leads. But I think you're you're in for a treat if you haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it, even more so now than I was before. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a, a great through line there. Another thing that I think you're you're known for, your internet famous for, is your ability to 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 do gifts, uh, and and you know I I love those. I mean, you you really have a remarkable uh, aptitude for that. And I I wonder, have you have you worked with this film? At oh all yeah. As far as, oh, okay. Let's hold on. I'll, I'm going to open up my my gift folder here, and I'll tell you exactly yeah. how many I've made. I keep changing my naming convention, which does not help. Hold on. Let's see. Again, really great podcasting here. So you have them all organized by Phil. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's a brilliant system. Well, well, I started <laughs> off just by doing the initial, like the uh, okay. the acronym for the title. So yeah. I've made at least six gifts from this film. And it's not easy to do with Boonwell films because they are, again, There's a subtlety. They, there's they, a there's subtlety a there. build, right? You can't get yeah. it all in three seconds. You exactly. Know, right, right. No, but I, the, I, after this conversation, I'm probably going to have to go through and see if I can... Uh, generate some more Uh-oh. if you'd be so kind send me a few links that i could put in the show notes just for, i certainly uh, will see reference certainly that, will. that'll be fun yeah yeah i, I can uh I, I can send you the gif files and you can just uh put them there or if you want links to tweets i can do that too yeah well that's that's where to find you you know your, your good morning tweets are always they bring exactly. a smile to assuming that twitter will still be around by the time that this episode goes live Who yeah, knows? yeah yeah well i'm gonna edit this thing as quick as i can <laughs> while while there's still fumes in the tank right speaking of old money you have to outrun someone trying to waste a lot of it right now oh yeah oh man well yeah well this is this is a lot of fun so what is what is your takeaway and you know one of the things i know you know this is a film that still i think is finding its its uh, audience among younger viewers as well as folks who've been watching cinema for a while and, and film, but uh, you know, what what are your recommendations? I mean, is, do you think this is this is a film that is kind of a, an ideal gateway for for uh, younger people who are just exploring the boundaries and possibilities of cinema? I I think so. I think it's the best entry point for Boonwell, yeah. simply because it has some familiarity uh, in in the absurdist humor. It has a little bit. Not a little bit. It has a lot more to say than probably other absurdist things that you've seen or other surreal things. Um, it's easily accessible. It's not as hard to find as some of his other films. It's available streaming. It's available on lots of different Blu-rays from mm-hmm. lots of different companies that have distributed it. I definitely recommend it as a great entry waypoint to Boonwell because uh, he is just such a, a unique filmmaker with such a unique voice and so many unique things to say. And it's my favorite of his films. And I'm yeah. sure it being the first one of his that I saw has a lot of bearing on that, but it's still a hard one to top, in my opinion. 
it seems like it's a sort of a perfect fruition of all of the life experience that he's had, his uh, his adroitness at at creating these very um, unforgettable scenarios of, of pulling the viewer in, kind of, you know, even as we've kind of analyzed some of the scenes as sort of a conventional plot development, there's conflict, there's tension, there's resolution. And yet it's all sort of <laughs> whips away into, into dissolves into somebody's fever dream, uh, you know, in the middle of the night while their spouse is like, darling, what's the matter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, you talked a little bit about the transitional scenes of, of the characters walking down the road. I mean, the very final scene of this linear, you know, development is uh, the ambassador getting up and having himself a midnight snack, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sitting there alone at his table after everything has kind of run its course. He just gets out of bed, breaks off a hunk of his baguette, bites into a slice of, of a, you know, roast or whatever it is, and sits down to have his moment of satisfaction. But after after the end of all, he is alone. He's mm-hmm. just basically one guy who got out of the bed in the middle of the night and has basically, you know, just dreamed this this story for us that we've all just sort of taken in. Uh, but it's that solitude, that isolation. And then it cuts to, the, of course, the final sequence. Um, and, and what struck me tonight, maybe you might appreciate this, is like, you know, this isn't a two, you know, when, when the characters are shown in profile, walking almost single file down the street, is that not too uh, far removed from Ingmar Bergman's Dance of Death at the end of Seventh Seal. You know, you've got the characters on a little string there kind of walking along a destination unknown. So I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a conscious tribute or emulation there, if it's just how been well, you know, because all of the other shots are either from head on with the characters walking into the camera or from behind walking away from the camera. But there's that one shot of them kind of in profile uh, leading along the way. Uh, nobody's really in charge. There is an order there, but I don't think the sequence means anything. But it's a, yeah. so it's that that juxtaposition of isolation, but then the people together as a group, but with no apparent purpose or idea of where they're actually heading. That says something about the human condition, yeah, <laughs> and the situation we all find ourselves in, one way or the other. Exactly, and it's an interesting perspective to kind of combine it or compare it to Seven Seal. I certainly didn't think of that, but I, yeah. I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, the only person not pictured in Discreet Charm is Death. Otherwise, you had the, <laughs> the right number of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and maybe the reason it came to mind is, of course, Criterion just released the uh, or announced the uh, upcoming 4K edition of the of the Seventh Seal. I made a little TikTok video where I was kind of showing the different versions of Seventh Seal that I own, and I happened to hold up the big book from the Bergman box where uh you know it's got it's got that sequence so maybe it was just the visual uh echoes that that kind of were fresh in my head from doing the clip earlier tonight and then watching that final scene of the film as i was getting ready to talk to you today it would make a good side-by-side gif comparison it yeah. would it wouldn't okay it, well yeah. you got your marching orders friend I, <laughs> Get it I, I will tell marcus pin to do it then <laughs> yeah okay. yeah yeah so now i don't want to get too much in the technicals but you, you you make the gifts yourself you like have the clip playing and you've got a way to capture that or how does that all work i'm yes i don't know if yeah. it's legal but i have that yeah well uh, i mean fair use and all fair that. use exactly yeah. i'm yeah. sure no one cares no i'm sure someone cares uh but no i i yes i rip everything from the movie i trim the gift down to the right size i make it uh usable on twitter so that 
all can enjoy, uh, yet no, none can enjoy because Twitter does not let you download the GIFs directly from their platform. Yeah, well, but uh, at least they can be seen, and I try to keep them as high of quality as possible, and then they compress them again to make them worse. But I at least keep all the frames in there. I don't cut a single frame out to keep the uh, the flow as pure as possible. That's truly cinematic. Well, no, exactly. you you are you are a wonderful resource, Dave, and I really appreciate your uh, bestowing those gifts to us uh, on a daily basis. So I, I certainly right. try. I certainly yeah. try. <laughs> all right. Well, our time is about up here. I do okay. want to keep the episode manageable. So, any final comments or anything you want to share with listeners just about yourself, where to find you, any of that kind of stuff? I mean, if you want to find me on Twitter, if it still exists, it's at Cinema versus Dave. That's Cinema vs Dave. I'm also on Letterbox at that same handle. And the only parting thing I want to just add here about Boonwell and Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, I think the most common, if you've only seen this film, if you've only seen this film of his, probably the next easiest step is to go back to one of his Mexican films, The Exterminating Angel. They both share a very similar oh, yeah. type of story. Uh, in in Discrete Charm, it's the rich who keep getting interrupted, unable to have a meal. Uh, and Exterminating Angel, it's the rich, unable to leave a room for whatever reason. Uh, yeah. So that is certainly another great uh, dig at the uh, wealthy class that would be a high recommendation of mine to check out. Yeah, but well, the old master playing variations on his themes. Excellent. Well, Dave, it's been a great conversation tonight. I so much appreciate you taking the time. And yeah, we're recording this a little bit late. That's another kind of thing you're known for is the late night uh, movie starts. So I appreciate you making a little time for me and to no share with our listeners some of your thoughts. Man. There's still pl- It's only 1049. There's still plenty of time to start a movie. Okay, we'll get the popcorn <laughs> fired up and we'll see you back here. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks, Dave. Good night. Thank you. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode with parting comments. First, I want to thank my guests, and I also want to thank you, listener, who've stuck with us throughout these last couple of hours of rambling conversation. Uh, This film means a lot to me. It means a lot to each of the folks I spoke with. And if you've listened this long, I have to trust that you've got a lot of fondness in your heart for the film uh, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie uh, and Louis Bunuel in general. Uh, so if you've got feedback, please, I'd love to hear it. Uh, drop a comment on my social media feeds and let me know what you thought about the episode or what you think about the film or both. And uh, for my next episode, we're going to be moving ahead in the uh, chronology here with Eric Romer's Love in the Afternoon, released in the USA as Chloe in the Afternoon, since there was a Audrey Hepburn film from some years earlier released under that same name. I guess they wanted to avoid the confusion. And just as kind of a note for the future, you know, this season four has been going on since 2021. (laughs) And I'm going to try to accelerate the pace as far as perhaps doing a little bit less coverage of Criterion Channel limited run streaming titles uh, and focus more on the physical media releases. So yes, Love in the Afternoon coming up soon. The King of Marvin Gardens, Last Tango in Paris, Eight Hours Don't Make a Day, Sisters, Don't Play as Cheap from the Melvin Van People's Box Set, uh, Cries and Whispers, and more coming up soon on Criterion Reflections. Thanks for listening. <laughs>